Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to the Football Social Daily weekend review show. And what a weekend it has been, not just for the Premier League, but for football and the power, the absolute power of fans. Manchester United's Premier League clash with Liverpool was postponed as hundreds of Manchester United fans protested outside and then inside Old Trafford about the Glazer family's continued ownership of the club. These historic scenes in Manchester, that's where we get ourselves started tonight. And let's be honest, it is one of the biggest stories in Premier League football this season. We'll be looking at how the day unfolded and what it means for both United and the wider footballing picture moving forward. In part two, we get ourselves stuck into some football that did actually take place this weekend. Manchester City moved within two points of the Premier League title thanks to a 2-0 win against Crystal Palace. Chelsea, they strengthened their top four case with an easy win over Fulham, but Leicester City stumbled again in Friday night action as they drew one all with Southampton. And then in the final part, we round up all of the other weekend's action with key wins for Brighton at home to Leeds and Aston Villa away at Everton, plus all the other goals and talking points in the last 48 hours. Right then, my name's Fergal Brennan and joining me tonight we have Ty Marshall, senior journalist for the Manchester Evening News and freshly back from Old Trafford. Ty, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm um, I'm okay, all things considered, Fergal. It's uh, it's been quite the day, as you can imagine. <laughs> I can't, I can't. We're going to get stuck into all the events and everything that went on at Old Trafford. And obviously, Ty was there on the ground, uh, not involved in the protest. You know, we'll put that disclaimer <laughs> out. But he was there, <laughs> and he can tell us exactly what happened. Um, and someone who I suspect had a slightly quieter weekend than Ty and myself. We have Goal.com's Manchester City correspondent Jonathan Smith. Jonathan, how are you doing? 
I'm good. I was watching it from the, the comfort of the sofa, just wondering what was going on. <laughs> the safest would, place in Manchester. Exactly. I'm just wondering whether City would be crowned champions this weekend or a, a little bit in the future. <laughs> OK, so the United postponement uh, is obviously this huge story that's um, broken over the weekend. And if you've been living under a rock in the last 24 hours, let me just update you on the latest situation. So Manchester United at home to Liverpool was due to kick off at 4.30pm on Sunday. The game was eventually postponed after the kickoff was delayed as hundreds of Manchester United fans protested outside Old Trafford. They later got themselves into the ground and onto the pitch. There was also protests outside the Lowry Hotel where the United squad were preparing for the game. And as I say, after initial delays and deliberations, the Premier League, police and the two clubs decided to postpone the game on an absolutely massive, massive afternoon. Ty, you were there on the ground um, as a friendly local journalist, not as a protester. Can you just give us a picture of exactly how the day unfolded? We've been watching this on Twitter and on the news and, and we've seen bits and pieces, but to be there, to be in amongst it, what was it like? Um, I mean, it was a, a remarkable, unprecedented day, really. I mean, I arrived, the protest was due to start at two. I arrived at Old Trafford at about one and um, there was probably a couple of hundred fans milling around at that point. Um, so I logged on to, to Twitter, which is not as useful a tool as it usually is this weekend for, for football journalists. Um, but logged on and, and noticed immediately that the protests at the Lowry, and it, it kind of felt even then at one o'clock that, A, we were in the wrong location for, for where the story was really happening, and B, that this game might not go ahead entirely smoothly and, and entirely as planned. Um, you know, obviously this protest was always expected. I think there was fears of, of 10,000 turning up. It was probably about half that in the end. Um, but they certainly made their, their voice heard. I think you know, th- there were probably fears that um, things not, not get out of hand, but that the protest might just be a little bit more than fans standing outside Old Trafford and singing about how much they dislike the Glazers. We've been in this situation before with protests against the Glazers and, and those sort of things haven't worked. We saw with the fans getting into the training ground around 10 days ago now that, that things might be escalating. So there was always a sense that something bigger might happen and even at one o'clock, when, when the protesters were outside the, the Lowry and making it clear they didn't want the game to go ahead, it became pretty obvious things were going to happen. And, and even at, you know, the protest started at Old Trafford at about two o'clock and the, the club had kind of made an area in, in the forecourt by the, the Trinity statue for those that know Old Trafford and outside the club shop for the protesters to be. But immediately they, they breached the barriers and, and got down towards the Munich Tunnel and, and congregated there. I um, don't know if they were trying to get through to where the team coaches would arrive or the director's box, but... They ended up gathering around there, obviously forced doors open to get on the pitch and went through their, their repertoire of, of anti-Glazer songs. And it was just um, an incredible day, really. I mean, the, the protest at Old Trafford ended quite swiftly when you know there was, there was a, a minor bit of trouble, really, with a few fans throwing, throwing bottles at police and it, it kind of got a little bit out of hand and the police reacted quickly. Um, that was probably about half four, but by then you know, it was already becoming clear that the game probably wasn't going to take place um, so it was certainly an, an incredible day to be there and an unprecedented day um, undoubtedly I think a, a victory for United fans and a, and a victory for football fans given what's happened over the last couple of weeks and for United fans what's happened over the last 16 years um, we're going to look at what the impact this will be in terms of United and, and the wider football picture and what's been a big couple of weeks for fan power and, and supporters forcing their clubs to, to recognise what they want but just looking on the events at Old Trafford, there was definitely a sense, as you say, when the kickoff time was delayed, that things 
did start to escalate in terms of where the fans were. We're talking about fans who were actually on the pitch recreating mm. goals. I saw a video of a fella scoring a Rooney-esque bicycle kick. There were supporters in the stands. They were speaking to um, Roy Keane and Mika Richards who were covering the match for Sky Sports. So this wasn't a case of just, as you say, flares and singing songs um, outside the stadium. This was play. Sorry, this was fans inside Old Trafford on the pitch in areas that they are not allowed to be but demonstrating that this is the force of feeling that they have towards the current situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess one of the things that, that, that might be that might concern United is is how coordinated and whether these protests were coordinated, obviously with what was happening at the Lowry and at, at Old Trafford, the fact that it started at two o'clock and immediately they tried to, to move to a different area at Old Trafford, whether it was always an attempt to get on the, the pitch. Um Interestingly, quite quite a few people who were nearby said that the, the fans that got the pitch went through a red exit door, and, and those exit doors are opened from the inside. And a, a lot of people I was speaking to said that that door was opened from the inside. Um, whether that was someone who, who thought fans were were you know in trouble, or it was getting a bit heated and needed somewhere to go and, and sort of spread out a little bit, or whether it was opened for for other reasons, I guess we don't know, but. There was certainly a feeling it was open from from inside, and yeah, once they were on the pitch, looked like a couple of hundred on the pitch. It, it you know, it, it raised the stakes of the protest further, and it, you know, in the in the, the COVID era, it complicates matters further because those, you know, as, as those of us who've done games, um, will know there's, there's red zones and amber zones at stadiums, and, and once fans are in a red zone, that's you know where the players need to be. Everything needs cleaning again, so that immediately raised issues. There was talk of whether they'd been towards the dressing room, so. You know that that kind of added to the feeling at that point that it was very difficult to see how this game went ahead. But you know the fact the fact they managed to get on the pitch, the fact that they were they were blocking the coach from leaving, and seemingly were going to be happy to to stay there all night if required to to stop the coach from leaving. I think it was very clear that this was intended to be a protest that that Joel Glazer and his brothers simply couldn't ignore as hard as they might have tried. Jonathan, when you look at the fans who were outside Old Trafford and obviously so angry at the Glazers and their continued ownership and, and this really damaged, really fractured relationship between the ownership of Manchester United, the fan base, the team, the management, every different area of the club. And obviously we saw the scenes at the Emirates with Arsenal and fans protesting about the European Super League and Stan Kroenke's ownership of, of their club. What we're seeing with United and we're seeing in examples in, in other situations is... The European Super League has been a bit of a switch point. Fans who've been so angry and so frustrated with the ownership and the direction that their clubs have taken in, in recent years, and as Ty said in United's case, for 16 years with, with the Glazers, it's very easy to look at this through the Super League frame and say, they're angry about that, that's kind of been done away with, it was a bad idea, it's been consigned to the dustbin, but... Fans are seizing the initiative and saying, no, it's not just the Super League. That's just a demonstration of the lack of regard that owners have for us. Now we want to move for actual change. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a major misjudgment uh, signing up for the Super League. But this has really been a tipping point for fans that this is highlighted. This is just a, a, a stage too far. And they're going to be serious now about this. You know, this isn't one day of action. You know, United are going to come back. The fans are going to come back time and time again, and you know they are looking for change now. This is not going to—they're not going to sort of go away in a few weeks' time. That the grounds reopen and they're going to come back and say, "Oh, okay, you know we've bought a few players and they might go for the title." They want real change. Um, you know that 
the thing was, I think when the Glazers first took over, there were a lot of protests and it lasted a long time and they somehow managed to ride it out and things died down. Obviously, there were a huge number of United fans who, who have never gone back. You know, they either went with FC United or they've continued their protests, watching the, continuing to watch the football, but, you know, they continued their anti, anti-Glazer protest feeling about it all. But this is too much now and it's going to be very difficult to see what happens next, you know, uh, where do you go as you, for the Glazers? Because I, I just don't see how they can ride this out. This will go. This will continue, and on and on and on. And obviously, the, you know the club are in huge debt. Um, the, the, I think some people have mentioned about the ground. It needs a, a facelift. Yeah. A lot needs doing, um, and this really feels like there's going to be a turning point. And Ty, obviously, when you look at these situations and the events today, and I think Jonathan's nailed it there, this idea of a, of a turning point. United fans that were there today or United fans that weren't, there is this general feeling of irritation and enough is enough with, with the Glazers and their ownership of the club. So when we look towards the future, the next few weeks, months, and potentially even into the next year, what are the short-term aims for the fans? Do they expect, do they want the Glazers out immediately? We know that's probably unlikely in, in realistic terms it takes a long time to sell a football club just just ask uh, Mike Ashley he'll tell you that but short term medium term long term what is the the plan that is being put in place to ensure that the Manchester United fans are happy and that potentially means the Glazer family being moved out of the club um, I, I think probably a lot of the protesters there would probably want them to, to sell the club but like you say I, I don't think that's if that was to happen now, I, I don't think that's necessarily an easy solution. Um, I think you know it's probably a wider point. But if you're selling a football club, you know if you're not able to be sold now, you're looking at three and a half, four billion pound, and no one is buying that football club at that price because they want to protect a community asset. No, you know Fred Doan from Betfred in Salford ain't buying that football club because he likes United at, at that sort of price. The only people buying football clubs at that price are people who see more more cream to be skimmed off the top and, and more profit to be had and. That's not a road anyone wants to go down. Um, you know, the United Supporters Trust, who, who were behind today's protest, would want more fan involvement. Would want independent um, directors on the board. They would want share a, a share issue and those shares having the same voting rights as the Glazers' shares. Um, things like that, really, that would give a greater say to fans and a greater consultation. I mean, the irony of, of the European Super League project is that, you know, I mean, Joe Glazer might rue the day he ever heard the words European Super League because he's managed to unite United fans when for 16 years they haven't really been united. There's been there's been a lot of anti-Glazer sentiment, but there hasn't been um, sort of enough of it to make a, a, a grand sort of protest. There's a lot of people who disliked the Glazer ownership but knew that their voices weren't sort of strong enough alone. There wasn't enough feeling within the ground. Um, there, there was issues at the time with United A being successful, but also with, with Sir Alex Ferguson. And we've got to remember that he was, you know, he was, he very strongly came out and backed the owners. So, you know, there, there's never been sort of a, a, a lasting movement against the Glazers. And in recent years, that anti-Glazer sentiment has kind of rebuilt, but never really rebuilt strong enough. And, and there's been a lot of divisions in the fan base around the right way to protest, whether they should be protesting in the ground. I think what the, the European Super League done is, is sharpened minds and made them, you know, made fans realise what, what the Glazers are in it for and, and what we know they're in it for, which is just profit. And I, I can't see those those protests stopping now. And I think what, what the fans want immediately and in the short term is some kind of, of fan involvement on the board and, and I guess that's some kind of, of check and balance really in, into what the Glazers are doing. 
And Jonathan, obviously at the moment, based on these protests today and, and the continuing anger from clubs, particularly those uh, involved in the, the European Super League, which from an English point of view, from a Premier League point of view, has, has fallen on its face with those six teams pulling out. But we do get the sense at the minute, and, and particularly as we're, we're in the middle of this social media boycott um, relating to discrimination and, and abuse that's targeted at people um, via social media, there is this need at the moment for change. And, and obviously the, the boycott is connected with, with a completely different issue, but there is still a connection between this idea that the powers that be, the authorities that are meant to be representing people within football and within society are not doing enough to protect the individual, protect the fan, protect the fan group. How confident are you that this will affect real change? And it might not happen in the next few days or few weeks, but if you almost set the start of next season as a relatively realistic benchmark, how confident are you that real change will be in place when the first ball is kicked for 2021-22? For yeah, uh, not, not confident at all. I mean, like Ty says... Uh, you know, buying Manchester United is going to cost a lot of money, uh, and the and the people who are going to are going to do that, very rich people who either want to make money out of the club, or or want it for other reasons. So, you know, I think the idea of um, a fifty plus one ownership, which we obviously see in other countries, I don't think it's realistic uh, in England. Really, um, I mean, certainly. <laughs> perhaps United, Liverpool, that's a possibility. But I think if you go further down, you know, City are obviously major benefactors from having a, a wealthy owner. So, I, I, and also the Premier League has been a huge benefactor because we have possibly the most competitive senior league in the world. Whereas you see that, you know, Germany, where this model is very successful for the fans, the competition is just not there. Bayern Munich just win it every year. They'll win it this year. They will win it next year. And you know they've just taken the the next best manager that they could they could get, you know, and, and it's just a cycle of, of Bayern Munich success. So uh, it's 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 what we what we want, and, it, and we have to really come up with a, a solution because the game is slipping away from from the hands of the fans. Uh, but you know, I, I I don't have an answer for that. You know, it's similar to the social media blackout. You know, I think we see with some of the people who are really targeted by this. It, they, they will receive offensive messages again on Tuesday, as, as they have done. But the, you know, this is highlighting the problem, and we just have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until until we can get some sort of change. But in terms of club ownership, you know, that's a much bigger challenge. Yeah, and a much longer road. Um, yeah. Ty, looking at how this will affect things on the pitch in terms of United season. Obviously still going to get into the top four. If this game had gone ahead today and United had won, that would have rubber-stamped a place in the Champions League for next season. The next game they win, we assume they're going to win one game between now and the end of the season, will confirm that they're in the Champions League. Um, but this adds another fixture to a really congested month um, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and the United players. They play Roma in the Europa League semi-final this week. They've got South, sorry, they've got Leicester to play in the Premier League next week. It's it's all getting very, very congested. And this is now going to throw another game into the mix where you look at it and you say top four is essentially secured, but Solskjaer wants a trophy and he'll be concerned that another game in the legs for his players could damage their chances in the Europa League. Yeah, quite quite possibly. Um, and I suppose it's where the game gets, gets rearranged too because there isn't really beyond 
you know, when we were at the time of recording this, we don't know when, but beyond beyond Monday, there's there's not really a, a date that suits United because they are playing every midweek and, and every weekend until the, the final day of the season. Um, it, it could realistically be played after the final day of the season, but they've got, I think that would be the Europa League final in midweek after that. So then you're talking potentially a week after the end of the season and it's, you know, I think it just seems a bit unrealistic for, for that to happen. And there's the, the sporting integrity side. Um, you know, I mean, I think United will get will get second, really. Um, even without this game, I think they'll get second. They're far enough clear of, of Leicester to make sure of that. But Liverpool are still chasing top four and their top four rivals aren't going to be happy if they get a game a week after the end of the season when they know what they need, if they only need a draw or if they know they need to win or win by a certain scoreline. So... You know there are there are sporting issues around when it's replayed, and I think that's certainly uh, an issue. Um, the the United game against Bournemouth that was called off a few years ago on the last day of the season that the people might remember. I think that was played a few days later, but I mean that was the last day of the season, and I don't think there was anything riding on it for for either team from memory. So it wasn't as much of an issue, but this feels like more of an issue. So I think it's you know it's hard to know when it slots into the calendar really, and and how it sort of affects games around it. Um, and Jonathan, as, as Ty said, Liverpool's picture's less clear in terms of where they're going to end up this season. As it stands with, with this postponement, they are seven points um, outside the top four behind Chelsea in fourth place. Five games to go, including this one, uh, whenever it gets rearranged. And Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool players, will be frustrated at the events of today that the game has been postponed. But they don't have that issue of, of a cup game or or, Euro, or or European night to to counter this against. They only have the Premier League to focus on, but it throws as we say, another game into into a packed schedule. But could it possibly have a little bit of a benefit for Liverpool? Because as Ty said, they they will be able to see the picture in front of them, which their rivals to get into the Champions League might not be able to do. Yeah, the thing is that Manchester United versus Liverpool is always a massive game. You know, whatever the time of the year, whatever's riding on it. You know, there's... Away from the process, the two of the biggest rivals in the game. So, you know, even if United are resting up for a potential Europa League final or something like that, they'll still want to beat Liverpool. And and if they have the chance of stopping them qualifying for the Champions League, they'll they'll want to win that game even more. So, I, I think it's probably more of a hindrance to Liverpool than United actually, because it's got this result. This game being postponed isn't going to affect their. Chances of finishing in the top four, whereas Liverpool, you know, they, they they need to get some momentum going, and yeah, they could have done with this. They could have done with United perhaps having their eye off the ball in this one, and just taking the chance to put the pressure on Chelsea. Where they, you know, they've got this big game coming up against Real Madrid, and you know they might be tired at the weekend. They could perhaps do without Liverpool right up behind them. So, I, th- I think Klopp will probably be the most disappointed of the two managers that this game didn't go ahead. Yeah, I agree. Given the picture in the league, it would have been a cracker as United against Liverpool always is, but the game has been called off. Genuinely a very mental, crazy and iconic day in Manchester as the biggest match in English football, Premier League football, one of the biggest games in world football was called off. After the break, we're going to be talking about the other side of Manchester as Manchester City moved to within two points of claiming the Premier League title. We're also going to be talking about the race for the top four as Chelsea strengthened their case, but Leicester slipped up. We'll catch you in a second. Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. 
Hello and welcome back to the Football Social Daily Premier League Weekend Review Show. Before the break, it was Manchester United and Liverpool as their game was controversially called off following widespread fan protests at Old Trafford. But we're going to move across the city to Manchester City now. Jonathan Smith, you covered this game for Goal.com yesterday and it's just seems to be that the City machine is chugging along. 2-0 win against Crystal Palace, all relatively routine, and City are now two points away from clinching that Premier League title. Yeah, I don't think Pep could have asked for a better game going into this massive game against Paris Saint-Germain. Very easy. They never really left second gear. Lots of changes. You know, They didn't need to call on any of the big hitters. De Bruyne, Gundogan, Foden, um, all left on the bench. Uh, and just so comfortable, you know, an easy victory, three points. A couple of people getting themselves back into uh, a bit of form, obviously a fantastic goal from Sergio Aguero. Uh, and it's just, you know, just a little reminder of what he can do. And maybe with those big Champions League games coming up, a very u- useful asset to have on the bench. It's just a reminder that obviously Pep's been hugely successful without a striker, uh, well, for most of this season, but... If he needs one, he's still got a brilliant one there waiting in the wings. Well, that was obviously the big story prior to kickoff was the changes that were made. Eight changes from the win over PSG in the Champions League. Rodri, Edison, and Yao Cancelo were the only three to keep their um, to keep their places. And nobody likes to second guess Pep. I'm sure you don't, even though you cover City <laughs> every week. But there does seem to be this sense that as we're in the business end of the season, Champions League semi-finals, going in for the Premier League, he does kind of have his Champions League team and his Premier League team it's always difficult to second guess him but you do get the sense that all those players that were rested against Palace yesterday that played so well in Paris to get that result will come back in for the second leg yeah I think the team is picking itself at the moment I mean one of the big things about Pep's disappointments in Champions League over his four seasons at City was that when it comes to those big games he, he does like to throw a bit of a, a funky Lineup in there, you know, an unusual curveball. So, yeah, um, <laughs> and this so far, I mean, we've got this game on Tuesday. You know, like you say, you don't like to second guess Pep, and maybe you might just be saving it all for this second leg at the Etihad. But so far in the knockout stages, it's been same as uh, you know this four-three-three system. Rodri playing at the base of midfield, Foden out on the left, Mara's on the right. Uh, De Bruyne and Bernardo and Gundogan sort of exchanging positions as, as false nine. Stones and Diaz obviously built up this great uh, relationship at the centre of defence, and it's working so well. Um, and it, you know, I think I think what it is now is that he's just playing to the strengths. And yeah, like you say, that I, I think that the side against uh, Paris Saint Germain picks itself, and it's up to Pochettino now to to try and work a, a way of beating them. Um, you know, I, I don't think you can write PSG out of this game. Obviously, Neymar and Mbappe, Di Maria, fantastic players. Uh, but you know, going back to your original point, you know, City are this well-oiled machine now. They've gone back to what they've been doing for three seasons so well: uh, controlling the ball, contro- controlling territory, territory, and they're just right on it. They're just right on it, and they're looking like, you know, dare say it, the one of the best teams in Europe, if not the best. And obviously, Ty, as, as we look at Aguero and he's coming to his end, uh, coming to the end of his, his time at City, we know he's not going to extend his contract this summer. And inevitably, there's going to be talk of, is there going to be a fairy tale? A goal against Palace yesterday, it was an absolutely textbook Aguero goal, latching onto a ball in the box and just bang, it was in the top corner before any of the Crystal Palace defenders could even oh. react. And 
Guardiola, you'll probably say, won't start him against PSG. But if they need a goal or if they get past PSG and into the final, the Premier League title will probably be wrapped up. Is there space for an Aguero fairy tale? He's synonymous with the most famous moment in Manchester City, arguably Premier League history, that famous goal in 2012 against QPR to, to win the title. Do you think Guardiola will give him uh, an opportunity if needed? Um, if needed, I think he will definitely get the opportunity. Um, I mean, the way he took his goal on, on Saturday was, like we say, was textbook Aguero, wasn't it? It was um, a, a brilliant finish. And even without the fairy tale, it was just it, it was just nice for him to have that moment, really, because it has been such a difficult season for him. Um, and, the, you know, Pep's celebration of the goal when he was pointing at Aguero and then sort of doffing his cap to him was was fantastic to see. Um, but, you know, you certainly wouldn't rule out a fairy tale given what he's done for City and, and given how good he is. Like I say, that it, it, this game on Tuesday doesn't strike you as a game where you're going to need to bring a striker on. Um, certainly things are probably going wrong for City if, if they're chasing the goal in the last 15 minutes or so. But if they do get through it and they reach the final having someone of the, the quality of Aguero to, to come off the bench if the game is tight or if City are chasing the game or if it's heading towards a penalty shootout is is fantastic. And I think you can certainly see a scenario where he does, you know, he, he does get his, his his potential moment to be a big match winner one more time. Yeah, and anyone looking for an Aguero fairy tale, his goal against Palace was his 182nd Premier League goal for City, which means he's now the top scorer in Premier League history for one club. An amazing end to the season. Could see him take over Andrew Cole, who's on 187, but unfortunately, he's probably going to run out of game time. Um, Jonathan, the other big story from the top four, Chelsea, 2-0 win over Fulham. Very straightforward. Obviously, coming off the back of that Real Madrid game, they followed a, a similar pattern to City in resting players. Uh, just five instead of eight for, for Thomas Tuchel as he looks to get them ready for the second leg against Madrid next week. They look to have top four sewn up now. You look at the results compared to the teams around them. They're the most in form. Performance like this yesterday, in, in, in truth, never really getting out of second gear. We know Fulham are having their problems, but as it stands at the end of the weekend, they're five points clear of Spurs in fifth. They should have top four wrapped up. Yeah, I think so. You know, they're looking really comfortable. In, in a similar way to City now, you, you sort of know who who are their best players, you know, what his strongest eleven is. You know, Mason Mount's really flying at the moment. It, it was good to see Kai, Kai Havertz, a player who I liked before he came to Chelsea. He's found it difficult. He obviously had COVID and he had a few complications from that. He's not really settled. Uh, he took his goals really well. Still those question marks over Timo Werner, obviously. Um be interesting to see whether he starts against Real Madrid. But, you know, I think they've got... They had a strong squad under Frank Lampard, but I think Thomas Tuchel's really sorted them out. And, yeah, I, I, once they get this the Madrid game out of the way, I don't see them having any, any problems before the end of the season and wrapping up that top four finish. And the interesting thing is will be, you know, what happens in the summer and how they kick on next season. But, uh, yeah, they'll uh, they'll be in Europe for sure. And it's a strange situation, time when you look at Chelsea, and, and Jonathan said there, when you look at Havertz, you would say that he struggled at the start of the campaign. Since Tuchel's come in, he's become more important, and we're starting to see the player that Chelsea paid all that money for. And it's a similar situation for Werner. He hasn't quite hit the heights. And despite the fact that their two big signings last summer haven't been the players that we expect them to be, they are probably going to qualify for the Champions League. They're already in one cup final, potentially going to get into the Champions League cup final. And... Mm. Maybe there's something to be said for the fact that 
your players not necessarily performing to expectation isn't a big thing. They just need to perform to what the manager wants them to do. Yeah, I think, you know, Tuchel's, um, the improvement Tuchel's got out of them has been built on the defence, really. They've, they've been pretty obdurate and just getting over the line. Um, Havertz has really improved lately, I think. I was surprised he didn't start ahead of Werner in, in Madrid. I think he's been he's been really good recently and, and looking a lot a lot sharper. Um I think it probably makes sense for him to, to start in in midweek. And they they were excellent for spells in Madrid, really, and, and should probably be a bit frustrated. They only drew that game 1-1, but they do look good for, for top four at the moment. It looks, on that team, you'd still think there's a lot of improvement to, to come from that team. Obviously, they, it seems that they want a striker this summer, as do most of the most of the big clubs in the Premier League, seemingly. So, so that could be interesting, but... You know the, the the progress since Tuchel arrived has been very impressive, and, and if they do end up in the FA Cup final and the Champions League final and get in top four, then I think you'd have to say that's that's a, a pretty remarkable impact he'll have had. Uh, Jonathan, the other top four story from the weekend was Leicester one all draw on Friday night against Southampton, and it's a, again a little bit of a strange situation for Leicester, even though they're ahead of Chelsea in the table as it stands. They they don't give that level of security to you when you look at the way Chelsea are playing, the performances that they're turning in. And for whatever reason, Brendan Rodgers and his players just, they don't seem able to tick that last little box to say, we're in the Champions League, it's done and dusted, and now we want to focus on the FA Cup final. They've had issues with injuries. Those do seem to be clearing up. Harvey Barnes is, is still out, but they've got quite a few other key players back in action. But they just... They, they seem to just want to play this this high wire game of waiting until the last game or the second to last game before confirming and as we know from last season when they got edged out of it by United that's a dangerous game and, and they have to play United they have to play Chelsea and they have to play Spurs between now and the end of the season yeah uh, yeah I mean it's they choked at the end of last season when they when we came back for a project restart you know they 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 were so comfortable in the top four, and then and then just blew up. Um, I mean, they've not they've not been terrible in recent weeks. Obviously, Kalechi has been in fantastic form. Um, you know, they, they got that place in the FA Cup final, which is not a distraction. I, I don't think. You know, I just think it all adds up to the to the morale boost for the for the club. You know, they've got a great squad. They've got everything there to secure that top four place. But you do look at those fixtures coming up. United. Uh, Chelsea and and Spurs plus the FA Cup final and you you can imagine why people are starting to get a little bit twitchy you know obviously Brendan's got he's he's got kind of a history of not quite getting over the line when you think back to the 2004 title race when Liverpool blew it Uh, and it's so important that they they just they make it and you know they're a good size chasing them down you know Liverpool are not going to give up until it's mathematically impossible and you have to think at some point they are going to win at Anfield. So, yeah, they've just got to be careful. And that was probably a game that they should have taken all three points from. So, yeah, got to be careful. Um, Ty, as for Southampton, it's a bit of a strange one. I had to have do a, a double check on this one because I thought I was reading this wrong. When we talk about Southampton, we seem to be fairly impressed with them so far this season. FA Cup semi-finalists, yeah. um, Danny Ings, when he's on form, when he's fit, is one of the best strikers in the league. And there seems to be a lot of positive news surrounding them. But when you actually look at the, the brass tacks of where they are in the Premier League, 15th on the back of this results. Yes, they played most of the game with, with 10 men and, and scrapped out a point. But 
as it stands, they're only a point off dropping down to 17th, which would leave them potentially getting sucked into a, a last-minute relegation battle. It's such a strange situation because if you didn't show someone the Premier League table and you said, where are Southampton? You'd probably say 11th or 12th. And they're not. They're actually having a really bad run of things in the last month. Yeah, it feels like they've been having quite a bad run for a while. I mean, in, in that early stage of the season where it felt like the, the title race was was wide open and any one of six, seven or eight teams could win it, it Southampton were talked about as one of those sides at one point. They were they were pushing up there. They're in the top four, in the top six for a while. They started the season really well. And they've got a lot of admirers because of, of the way they play. They press so aggressively. Hassan Hootel seems such a, a genuine manager to play for and, and such a... You know, he, he sets his team up with with excitement, and he's so animated on the touchline. And they are they are a team that are good to watch, but their recent results have been been terrible. Really, they've been poor. It, it feels like since around Christmas, maybe even before Christmas. And to finish sixteenth, seventeenth, I think you'd have to say would be a, a terrible season for them. I think we all expect more of them. It certainly felt in the first half of the season like a top ten finish was was there for the taking. So. To fizzle out and end up 16th, 17th, I think, would would be a disaster. But it, it probably shows the faith in the, the project there that it doesn't really feel like there's ever been any mention of of Hassan Hootel being under under pressure. They seem to have an awful lot of faith in him to, despite the, the second half of the season they've had. Yeah, very strange situation. Maybe the value of a good PR team. Manchester United, take note. You want to get yourself down to Southampton and hire some of their PR staff if you want to improve your public relations. Right, we're going to call it there for the second half. After the break, we're wrapping up all the remaining fixtures from this weekend. Some big wins at both ends of the table. Brighton eased their relegation fears with a 2-0 win over Leeds and Tottenham boosted their European chances as they battered already relegated Sheffield United. We're going to be talking about all of that in just a second. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to the Football Social Daily Premier League Weekend Review Show. Just a reminder, if you're a regular listener to the podcast or if you're a new fan, if you click subscribe on this episode, you can get a brand new podcast every single day. We are here every day of the Premier League season, giving you everything you need to know about the English top flight. And we're available wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Football Social Daily. Right, the rest of the action this weekend. Jonathan, I'm going to go to you first on this. Tottenham 4, Sheffield United, who are already down and out. Poor old Sheffield United, nil. Tottenham move up to fifth, and they are now five points outside the top four, but looking strong for Europa League finish. But what I want to talk about is the strangest cat in the Premier League at the moment, and that is Gareth Bale. One week, he can't get on. One week, he comes on and he looks like a Sunday League player. And then he comes on, oh, sorry, he starts against Sheffield United and bangs in a hat-trick. What is going on with Gareth Bale? Please <laughs> I, answer me. What is going on with Gareth Bale? I can't, I can't answer you. <laughs> I mean, if you saw and don't, the... And don't say Sheffield United are rubbish. That's what's going on with Gareth Bale. <laughs> well, I mean, you say that. I did look at the goals that Gareth Bale has scored against this season and it's not a particularly great list. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's Stoke, Lintz, uh, Brighton, Wickham... Wolfsburger, Burnley, Palace, and now Sheffield United. So he's not, he's not doing it against the good clubs. But then you see the way he took those three goals uh, against Sheffield United, and it's just absolutely fantastic. It's sort of Gareth Bale is absolute best. Three brilliant finishes, um, and yeah, you wonder what's going on. You know, last week it was the, 
probably Spurs' biggest game of the season, I would say. I mean, I can understand if, if some Spurs fans would say that they, you know, chasing the bigger four and the Premier League games were bigger, but that it seemed really important last week to try and win that trophy. A big chance in the final of the Carabao Cup. Bale's nowhere near it. When he comes on, does absolutely nothing. Uh, I, what, I mean, what's going to happen to him at the end of the season? He, he, he was talking about he's going back to Real Madrid. He still sees his future there at the club. You know, I, I don't see how he can take this form into getting back into the Real Madrid side. Equally, I can't see how Spurs can really sort of push out the boat and try and sign him. So I don't know what happens with Gareth Bale, you know, and I can't explain why he is brilliant one week and <laughs> doing nothing the next. Um, Ty, it's such a strange situation with Tottenham and not just, you know, the fact that Gareth Bale mystery rumbles on and no one can really solve it. And nobody really knows what is going to happen. The seventh place in this Europa League conference spot is being thrown around like a hot potato. Nobody really wants it. As the weekend ends, it's Liverpool who are down in seventh, obviously on the back of the, the postponement today at Old Trafford. And Tottenham, you just don't know what is going to happen. Ryan Mason, when he comes on, he, he tries to talk about stability and the fact that they want to have a strong end to the season and, and, and get themselves into Europe and make sure that certain boxes are ticked. But you just don't know what's going to happen. They could put together a really good run of form, get Europa, maybe put a bit of pressure on Chelsea and Leicester in the Champions League places, or they could just fall off completely and end up 10th. Yeah, they're a very hard team to, to call at the moment. And as good as they might have been against Sheffield United, they weren't great against City with the trophy on the line last week. I mean, City are a very, very hard team to play against at the moment, but I didn't think Tottenham really did themselves any justice at all in, in that game. The fact they've still got to play Leicester and Leicester have got such a tough run in certainly leaves the top four as, as still a possibility for them. But they have got a rookie, you know, a very rookie manager in charge at the moment. And whatever happens this season, it, it feels like a pretty defining summer for them. The Mourinho experiment obviously failed. I think Daniel Levy was probably the only person that actually thought it would work. Um, you've got the issue of Harry Kane. It, it feels like it's a pretty decisive summer for for Kane, really, and the time is coming that if he wants to go and wants to push for titles elsewhere, it needs to be this summer. So I think they've got a real big summer ahead of them coming. If they can somehow creep into the top four, then all of those issues become a little bit easier. But if they end up outside of it, then it is significantly more complicated and it does feel like the last the last few games will probably set them up for, for what kind of, of summer they can face. Um, two other teams pushing for Europe Jonathan Everton Aston Villa 2-1 win for Dean Smith's side at Goodison Park and it's again a, a little bit of a strange situation for both of them because they are still in the European conversation you look at the table Everton are only uh, three points away from West Ham in sixth I, I'm keeping having to do this maths because I'm, I'm avoiding the seventh place I'm naturally drawing to seventh but obviously nobody as I say wants that Europa League conference position and Villa are still in the hunt as well three points on Merseyside will, will only boost that but you kind of get the sense that they're, they're both spinning their wheels between now and the end of the season because ultimately some bad results at the start of 2021 has probably undermined them both and they're probably both just going to slip down towards mid-table. Yeah, it's a real shame actually. I think you know a few weeks ago we were looking at that top four race and really thinking this could be one of the best we've ever seen. The likes of Everton, Aston Villa were in the picture, Liverpool were falling apart, Spurs were slipping up under Mourinho and, and no momentum. Uh, Everton were really up there and I think they've won one in the last seven Premier League games and you know you just think four four or five points 
and they're right back in the picture. But it, you know, as it stands, you, you just can't see them anywhere. You know, certainly they're not going to catch Leicester or United. Uh, and, and and like we were saying before, I think Chelsea are going to carry on with their momentum. So Everton are out of it. Villa, that was their first. You know, that was their first decent performance in a while. So. Yeah, it's been a real shame the way those two two sides in particular have, have fallen away after making such a great start, well, first half, first three quarters of the season. So, uh, you know, a great win for Villa, but ultimately, yeah, it's, it's getting them near that seventh place that they don't want. So everyone's fighting over eighth, aren't they? <laughs> Yeah, the race for eighth. I never thought I'd be saying that. <laughs> yeah. um, one team who were in that bracket of potentially qualifying for Europe, but as an Arsenal fan, I've already ruled them out, is Arsenal. 2-1 win away at Newcastle. Mikel Arteta made a very strange decision, tie in midweek, Euro- uh, Europa League semi-final. Whilst Manchester United were battering Roma, Arsenal were struggling against Villarreal because Mikel Arteta decided to change the whole team and rest them for this must-win game at St. James's Park. And that caused a lot of frustration for, for me as an Arsenal fan for a lot of Arsenal fans because we know that top four is out of the equation a Europa League spot is probably already beyond us but he, he obviously has a lot of questions to answer and, he, and he, he fronted up after the Newcastle game and said there's a number of players who weren't fit including Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang who came on and, and scored against Newcastle do you think this was used as a bit of a testing ground to say I made a mistake in the first leg now I know the best team to go and do a job in the second leg yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, I mean, it was a very strange team selection at Villarreal. I think when that, that team dropped, everyone was, was scratching their heads, heads and, and trying to work out what was going on. And in truth, Arsenal are probably a little bit fortunate to still be in that tie and, and very, very well in that tie. It could have been a lot worse for them. They certainly needed this this win. Um, it's been such a, a bad time for them recently with the defeat last weekend as, as well. And they've just been such an inconsistent side this season we, we mentioned Arteta's best team I'm not sure he knows it I'm not sure he has the faintest clue what it is I'm not sure anyone really knows it so the fact that they have performed well today and, and got a good win would suggest that you just go with with most of those players again against Villarreal and, and hope they can do the business but I do still feel that there's an awful lot of questions there for for Arteta and I, I just don't I don't get the impression that he really knows what is his best team and his his sort of his plan there with that team at the moment is it still feels like it, it needs a lot of surgery. Uh, before we move on to the final game of the weekend, which is Brighton winning at home to Leeds, as I say, we're at that point of the season predictions. Um, Jonathan, we might not have you on again. Tie the same between now and the end of the season, so I'm going to get you to to nail your colours to the mast. Jonathan, give us your top four. Top four: City, United, Leicester, Chelsea. Ty, would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I would, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, right, we're going to try and split you a little bit then. <laughs> Ignoring the brand new Europa League conference, uh, auto windscreens, trophy, whatever it is, uh, who gets the other two Europa League spots? Jonathan, go back to you first on this. Fifth and sixth, who's going to finish there? Um, I think probably Liverpool finish fifth. And uh, I still think probably, I think probably Spurs finish above West Ham. So Spurs in sixth. Okay, Liverpool Spurs, Ty, would you follow that? Are you going to give the Hammers a chance or do you think someone could break from the pack at Everton and Arsenal, despite the fact that we've been doing them down for the last few minutes? I think maybe... I think West Ham might 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 get it. Their, their running's not particularly difficult. They're, you know, They've got probably five winnable fixtures there, really. So I think they might do enough to, to stay in fifth or sixth place. I think it... 
I think Tottenham are probably just a bit too inconsistent. I think it'll probably be Liverpool and West Ham. There you go. Uh, Jim is doing the rotor as we speak, so you won't be hearing much from Jonathan next season where Ty will be in front row centre for the first game of 21-22. Uh, Final game of the weekend, Brighton 2-0 against Leeds. Jonathan, we know that momentum's massive. We've talked about Fulham and the fact that maybe they peaked a little bit too early in trying to get out of the drop zone. Newcastle seem to have absolutely nailed it. But so have Brighton. Um, a few weeks ago, we were talking about them being the ones swapping with Newcastle and potentially getting sucked back into it. But three massive points against Leeds, they should be OK now. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was interesting watching that game. Obviously, they've had problems scoring goals all season. And you could really kind of feel attention watching that game. So... Um... It was great to see Danny Welbeck, the way he took that goal, absolutely fantastic, fantastic strike. And that, yeah, that should take all the pressure off now. Uh, I think 10 points above Fulham, yeah, I mean, that, it, it's got to be four wins and four defeats and that's that's probably not going to happen. I mean, the interesting thing now is uh, what do Brighton fans feel about the season? Because they're, they're actually, I think they need five points to better what happened last season, which obviously... Uh, cost Chris Hutton his job, but uh, it feels like they've been a lot better this season. You know, they're a team I enjoy watching, um, and you know, I just think if they can get a striker in the summer, they could be a team to watch next season. I, you know, I like the way Graham Potter sets them up, so I think they're a side to watch. You know, they're, they're comfortable now, and I think that it's time they could kick on. Um, and Ty, just looking ahead to some of the Monday night action, obviously down the bottom, there's still a fair few bits and pieces still to be decided. But as we look at it, West Brom at home to Wolves, if they lose based on that Brighton result, they're down. Do you think they have a chance? Do you give them any chance? Do you just think maybe they've run out of time? Allardyce's philosophy just has, has come up short for them? Yeah, I think so. They seem to have improved recently, but I think they've they've left it too late to improve weirdly for an Allardyce team that they seem to have improved by scoring lots of goals and, and playing quite entertaining football the the game against Villa last Sunday night was, was a real sort of ding dong game and, and that the equaliser they conceded there in the last minute I think has has probably doomed them unfortunately and uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule them out picking up another couple of results I wouldn't rule them out finishing above Fulham to be honest but I, I don't think it'll be enough to get out of it uh, and the last game on Monday night, Jonathan, the Claret and Blue derby, Burnley against West Ham. We've, we've talked about West Ham and are they going to have enough to hold on in that race for Europe? Can they get themselves into the top four potentially? Burnley, you'd imagine, are safe. We talked about them last weekend and said that any time we worry about them getting sucked into it, they go and batter someone. That's exactly what they did. They beat uh, Wolves 4-0 last time out. But you get the sense this means, this means more for David Moyes because he knows that a poor result now will probably end their top four hopes. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was brilliant, that result for Burnley last week, but they are at the best when everything's on the line. You know, the centre-halves are just fantastic. They throw themselves in front of everything and maybe they're safe now. It's, you know, it's not quite as important as it was. And like you say, it's huge for West Ham. They they, they really have to win that one. So, yeah, I fancy them to, to pick up those three points, even though I did say they wouldn't finish in the top. Top six. <laughs> we won't hold that against you. Um, final prediction, Ty, go on, we'll go to you first on this. The bottom three, does it stay as it is? Um, four games to go. We've got nine points between Fulham and Newcastle. Is there any chance someone gets sucked down to it? A Scott Parker-inspired miracle? No, I think it's it's done and dusted. I think Fulham had their momentum and have, have very much lost it. And I think they'll I think they'll go down in, in 19th. I think West Brom will go down in 18th. And obviously, we've already waved goodbye to Sheffield United. 
Um, Jonathan, would you back that up? Little dose of reality there of what it takes to to stay in the Premier League. Do you see any chance of it changing? No, I'm afraid I'm going to have to go along with Ty. I think it's done and dusted at the bottom. Yeah, and anyone looking ahead to next season, it's already been confirmed. It's Norwich City and Watford who are back up in the Premier League via automatic promotion. And as it looks, it's going to be Brentford, Swansea, Bournemouth and Barnsley in the Championship playoffs. Ty, Jonathan, we're going to call it there for a breathless and pretty ridiculous and iconic show um, Ty Jerry Springer style we're going to give the final word to you on this Manchester United have made a real statement about fan power uh, this afternoon what would you like to see change this summer for Manchester United Football Club um, I think there's got to be some some signs of, of commitment from the Glazers in, in terms of giving fans a greater say now I think the European Super League was, was the catalyst for this anti-Glazer sentiment returning, but there was an awful lot of it as well from the, the open letter that Joel Glazer wrote on the website, on the official United website on the Wednesday afterwards when he, he talked about regaining trust and rebuilding trust. Trust hasn't been there for 16 years and they've made absolutely no effort to engage with fans. They've made absolutely no effort to win the trust of fans. They've they've been silent for, for 16 years. You know, Joel Glazer said in that letter that he wants to communicate with fans. He said that in 2005 as well he did an interview with MUTV and then the next the next word we hear from him communicating with United fans is, is this apology 16 years later so you know it, it was laughable some of the stuff in, in that letter really and I think that only exacerbated the, the strength of feeling so if, if they're genuine about it they've got to come to the table with the United supporters trust and give them a, a greater say in, in the running of their club and you wonder today watching that I mean that was the the green and gold protest is is one they can ignore, but what happened today is is something they can't ignore. That that hit them where it hurts, which is in the pocket. So there might well have to be some a change of approach from them there. There you go. Who needs Jerry Springer when you've got the sage words of Ty Marshall? Jonathan <laughs> Ty, thanks so much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Great stuff. And we are taking a quick bank holiday break on Monday, but the team will be back on Tuesday with a Champions League podcast as Manchester City look to take another step closer to their treble dream to their treble dream. I need a rest. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again very, very soon. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.